I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. And then giving rise to the mind of bodhicitta, the bodhisattva vow. May I complete the path to enlightenment for the sake of all beings. And that's so much what this is about. May I wake up so that actions of mind, body, and speech uplift, support, edify, brighten, are positively generative in the mostly hidden to us networks of interconnection to aspire to put out only what uh, is good, is true, and is beautiful. And that means it's officially no longer cool to be jaded about life. I saw a bumper sticker that said, kindness is the new punk rock. Grounded positivity is cool. In this session, one of the things we're doing is we're opening the heart in a particular way. We're turning towards appreciating the life that we have. May I wake up so that my actions of mind, and mind is an action, mind is an action that flows into the hidden webs of interconnection. May I wake up so that actions of mind, body, and speech uplift and support and brighten and are positively generative. And this aspiration gives us much to do. It makes all the ingredients of our life into what we can cook into this. It gives a certain kind of durable meaning. We human beings are creatures that starve spiritually without meaning. And when we're starving of deep and true meaning, maybe we turn towards pleasurable objects to try to hit that spot. Doesn't work. Never works. Maybe we turn towards trying to accumulate more power to hit that spot that's hungry for true meaning. Doesn't work. Never works. The absence of meaning feels so terrible to us that some of our fellow beings take their own lives when they feel totally disconnected from meaning. And we seek meaning in so many places, relationships, careers, arts, politics, competition. But these only partially satisfy the hunger if the meaning of being is remote. The meaning of being is remote and we live just on the horizontal plane. The hunger persists and it's seeking its thing after thing, place after place, idea after idea. We're hungry if beings given meaningness is remote. 
and yet we're not remote from it, and yet we're not full with it either, else our seeking for meaning would not look like it does. In some sense, our life is the evidence. So in session, in the moment of actual practice, we are not seeking meaning or understanding or new perspective. In session, we are not seeking an overview of our lives, a new angle. These things may pop in as byproducts of actual practice. But in actual practice, we are beings meaning saturated moment. Standing apart and discriminating thought about body, mind, about emotional condition, standing apart from life in the mind of good, bad, I like it, I don't like it, the whole ranking system has a restless, disconnected taste to it. We're not doing just a better version of that in session. The faith mind poem that we chanted basically says discriminating thought does not go beyond opinion. And now there's a neural correlate for the discriminating mind, the prefrontal cortex connected to the default mode network, which meaning meaning we default to this discriminating thought mode of being, distant and alienated, disconnected from life and meaning's actual source, continually. Too continually. The meaningness that could satisfy will not be found in opinions or ideas, though they might lead us in that direction. Being's meaning is in intimacy, direct connection, breath, attention as one, space, awareness as one, tree, I, and I consciousness as one. Sound, ear, and ear consciousness as one. And that's the body of this moment, being's intimacy. That's the taste in our mouths, being's intimacy, direct connection. The mind's seeking and grasping for meaning, one of the ways it does this is it seeks an experience, session for example, and then it tries to take something from it that it can chew on and expand into some impactful insight or some 
souvenir of meaning. But being's meaning is intimacy, it's direct connection, so there's no meaning swag. There's no meaning trophy. Intimacy and direct connection gives little room for the spectator, for overviewing our life, little room for a witnesser. Or you could say we are practicing letting go of the spectator, overviewing life, the witnesser, for direct connection, for being's intimacy. So here now is being's fulfillment. Often there's no experience that we can say, ah, I'm on the right track. Many times when we say, ah, I'm on the right track, it's just an echo. It's just a conception of something that's already, already gone. So on the level of mind, meaning is constructed. It's being made up. It's being generated. And all constructed things are deconstructing. They are withered and pushed at by the world, and so they fall down. They can't prop us up. Constructed means if you lean on it too much for happiness, sooner or later you will find yourself unhappy. You will find yourself disappointed. Constructed means there's so many moving parts that there's nowhere to rest on. Constructed means the universe is in the process of changing into something else. This body-mind is this moment changing into something else. It's beautiful creativity. So meaning on the level of mind, which I'm proposing is much of what mind is doing, it's seeking to make meaning of experience. Meaning on the level of mind is mind telling itself stories about the why, the what, and the how of what arises. And that would be fine, except the storytelling mind can't keep up with the light speed, creativity, inconceivable shifting of this moment. As soon as you say this moment, you're no longer talking about it. Just take a moment and notice the goneness of each moment. Gone yet replaced. Disappearing yet appearing. That's this breath, that's this mind. <laughs> 
That's this Zendo. So we encourage ourselves to let go of the storytelling mind, the meaning-making mind, because it always lags. The mind of thought is not with it. It can never be with it. It's always talking about ghosts. The old teacher Mumon said, until we realize presence, we're like a ghost that haunts the bushes. Kind of a weird statement, actually. Nobody likes to be called a bush-haunting ghost. In many ways, the habitual storytelling commentary mind is a conglomeration of ancestral and cultural and personal ghosts. The recycling, the haunting of conversations from three years ago, five years ago, three months ago. The should-haves, the would-haves, if only I did. For younger people, we tend to be haunted by the future, if only I will do. And so we live in a haunted house. But life is now. It is right now. So actual life has already slipped out of whatever confining label or designation or concept our mind creates. Actual life is like a drawing made on water. That's the freedom that we sit in. It strikes me that it actually takes courage to sit in this freedom. We don't like how open and free it is. Because at least the ghosts are familiar. The poet um, Jim Harrison and I had correspondence when I was a younger monastic here. And I really liked his poetry and then I loved, he told me that um, every day he would sit zazen and his cat would go upon his head for the whole period until he was done. And then he became my favorite poet. This is, this is Jim Harrison. I can freely tie myself up without a rope. I can freely tie myself up without a rope. This talent is in the realm of anti-magic and many people have it. On a dawn walk, despite the creek, the birds and the forest, I have to get through the used part, the murky fluid of rehearsals and resentments. But then they drain away and I'm finally where I already am, smack dab in the middle of each step, the air you can taste, the evening primrose that startled by my visit doesn't turn away.
So all of this is to encourage us to not look in the wrong place for dharma's fulfillment. It will not be found in chewing things over in our minds. It won't be found thinking about. We take an attitude towards our mind stream, or we can take an attitude towards our mind stream, and there's an attitude that is um, a blessing. And I call it active disinterest, because this is not about thinking the right thought, or having a new perspective, or processing correctly your life or your conundrum. It is not about that at all. Because of that, we don't really need to pay attention to the content of our minds. Maybe if you're the cook and you don't need to burn the cookies, or maybe you have to think about how many shovels to put out for the people in the garden, or that kind of thing. Active disinterest in the mind And you could try this um, right now. Just behold your mind stream. Just be there as it emits, as it proliferates. Just hang out with it. And view it as just like a, a frothing stream. Each thought a weightless bubble each image, just a reflection on the water. Just watch words cascade from the source. Just watch images arise and pass empty, actually not significant. Just like bubbles. No matter how hard we try, we cannot make this mind stream substantial. You can't actually freeze it. Have you ever noticed you can't stop on one thought? Your mind cannot get clogged on a thought, although it can go in eddies. The content of the mind, as far as deep spirituality, not important. Bubbles. So this is something that you can work with. An active disinterest. We taste essential meaning. We taste heart meaning. Meaning that we might not be able to explain to others, actually, as we ungrasp from commentary mind's meaning. The meaning that silence is full of. The meaning that the forest is pregnant with.
all of the rituals of Sashin. It is designed to help us do this, to help us release ordinary meaning-making so we can sink into something more fertile. And yet, there's more to the path than that. And I want to unpack and flesh out the um, path of Dharma because it is, I feel, profoundly meaningful to take this much time and saturate ourselves, to imprint ourselves and all beings because we exist in interdependence with Dharma. Dharma training has traditionally been broken down into three categories expressed in different ways with different emphases depending on the tradition. So the first is samadhi, absorption or presence. the meaning-free immersion in the flow of being, whether that's the breath, your body expanding and contracting, whether you're letting yourself fill with the hum of silence. It's about being on the spot. It's about nowness. It's about focus. And sometimes there's an idea that this is enough, but it's not enough according to the Buddhas. If we thought this was merely about samadhi or concentration, then Navy SEALs who are training to murder people would be saints because many of them have concentration that we could only dream of, the amount of stability and focus and iron nerve. But that intensity of focus is not the whole of the path. But these are interdependent, as we will see. These all work together. And if there's any merit in talking about this, always a good question regarding Zen practice. If there's any merit in talking about it, it might help me go, oh, I'm, I'm getting kind of one-sided about practice. I'm not really uh, applying the, the whole gestalt here. Spiritual life is full-blooded. It's full-bodied. So we have samadhi, the presence training one element of zazen. And then let's call the second uh, perceptual. Sometimes it's called the category of seeing. For Sashin, what is useful as far as this, maybe two things. First, all concepts, labels, all decideds, That's a new word for me, the decideds. There's those things that you've you've already 
there's no more room for a new angle. There's no more, you know what it is so much you actually don't look at it anymore, right? This happens a lot in people's meditation practice. It, we believe it's so familiar or we have a false familiarity that we don't actually look at it anymore. It's not actually intimate. It's like the friend that you're sure you've heard all their stories, so they're talking and you're daydreaming while they talk because you feel like, well, there's nothing new here. The decideds. All concepts, labels, and decideds are limiting because they are not direct connection. So as a training, we hold lightly our supposed-to-be's, our conclusions, our decideds, our labels, even the label grief, even the label anger, especially the label me and I. We're holding those lightly or not holding them at all. The tricky thing about decideds is we often don't know we've done so. Somehow the door of the mind swings shut and we don't know that that happened. That's one of the saddest things about being a human being. So where this is really actually alive is catch it as soon as you can. If you start to be in an eddy of, oh, my session is, or oh, my life is, or that person, or this, whatever. If you start to feel that a story is being woven, then cut through that story. You don't need it. Being's meaning does not depend on that story. So sometimes we call this unknowing. So may we un unknow. May we unknow. The second perceptual training is not forgetting to see emptiness impermanence. In the traditional awakening teachings, we are described as people who don't see what's actually before their eyes. Another amazing thing about being a human being, that that's true, that we cannot see exactly what's in front of us. We cannot experience the actual experience we're having. Delusion, illusion, is kind of amazing. There's a Christian mystic, and she said, Thingness is the heart's great sorrow. Thingness is the heart's great sorrow. So not forgetting to see emptiness and permanence means uh, as you inhabit your body, heart, mind, and its arising, disappearing, don't forget there's no thing there. It's space, presence, and activity. 
Don't forget to see emptiness and impermanence in this thing we call ourselves. This moment, whatever the shape, is not a thing, but we forget that. Not forgetting to see that breath and attention are one flow. Not forgetting to see that space and awareness are one flow. Tree, eye, and eye consciousness are one flow. Bird chirp, ear, and ear consciousness are one flow. You might ask, what is it that does not flow then? That's a very good question. So we are training in and the teachings, if you listen to the chants with an ear for these things, you'll hear them there. Unknow, don't decide, don't forget to see emptiness, impermanence, reality constantly flows. Sometimes the teachings are presented as stopping there, as just about samadhi and insight. But Dharma practice is brittle and probably not even effective if it doesn't have the aspect of training our attitude. We are consciously deciding to change our heart stance. Much of whether we experience ourselves as free or not free has to do with our attitude towards what's flowing through. And perhaps like me, you long for a change of heart. You want to feel differently about your life. You don't just want to have a clear mind. Because you might have a clear mind to the life that you feel is shit. But the feeling that it's shit is the place that we need to work. Because that attitude, that heart stance has been enthroned. And so we long for a, a change of heart. It's very different than looking out at one's life and saying the configuration is wrong, the configuration is wrong. Let me change the configuration. That's another way to articulate what seeking is. Seeking is the logic that if I change the configuration of my life, then the heart will be at rest. Sometimes we should change the configuration of our lives. But many times it's our attitude towards this configuration. Attitude is interesting. 
Attitude can be like having body odor so long that you no longer smell it, but others do. Have you ever had someone come over to your house after they did a workout and they forgot they didn't shower and therefore they forgot that they actually smelled bad? You might not realize you have body odor until you peel off the clothing that is stuck to you and then you go, oh, I've been ripe. The Dharma is kind of like this. In spiritual communities, there are people who come and three months, six months, a year later, they realize that they are largely angry people or passive people or whatever the habit is, but everyone else could see that all along. But for us, we have to peel the clothes off until we can go, oh, I was wearing this the whole time. Or it's like living in a lake your whole life so you don't know it. But others outside of the lake can look in and see that you're swimming in it. But we don't know that we're wet. So, so much of what we're doing is to effect a change of heart. We bow, we do devotional chants, we eat orioki, we regard each other with kindness, we are of service. The whole environment is a context within which we can bring forth our virtue. Virtue is interesting. Virtuous acts, acting from positive attitudes, uplift us. They leave energy, warmth, and openness in their wake. Non-virtuous acts drain energy. They close the body. They dim the mind. This is not doctrine like some kind of Ten Commandments kind of thing or Buddha looking down at you as a bad boy. This is an invitation. This is a hypothesis to be tested. For example, do wash up with resentment one day, and then the next day do it with a friendly and supporting heart. Or do wash up one day and do it in a sloppy way, and then the next day do it with thoroughness, and see how you feel after. Now, this training and attitude is actually not about being like a, a shiny, bright, happy person. That happens to some people, unfortunately for the rest of us. But that's not what it's about. When we talk about virtue and training the attitude, it's actually, oh, it's not for you to become um, good in the sense that you can go, I'm good. And other people can look at you and go, you're good. We're both good. Positivity is energizing. Virtue energizes us. And we have to gather energy to overcome habitual mind. That's why these things are interdependent. Samadhi, perception training, and a change of heart, attitude. They feed into each other. 
Bitterness towards life is a dirty fuel. If you find you have some kind of uh, reticence or hesitation about doing some of the particular gratitude practices, that may be the very clue that you should do them. It took me a long time to learn that. So often the practices that I resist are actually the best medicine. And the ones that I love to do are actually just supporting my delusions. <laughs> Not always. There's no always. Bitterness towards life is a dirty fuel. And changing attitudes is often very hard work. Anyone who offers an easy and struggle-free spiritual life is really just a servant of capitalism, trying to sell you their weekend workshop. Changing attitudes is often hard work. But even the aspiration to do so is positive and is energizing when we really turn towards it we make a clear intent to do so, you might find that the energy follows the intention. So this session emphasizes the deep beauty of generosity and gratitude. I'm going to read some of uh, Dogen Zenji's very nuanced uh, appreciation of of generosity. And generosity and gratitude, do they flow into each other? Do they cause each other? That's an interesting question. This is uh, Dogen Zenji from a, an essay offered a long time ago called Bodhisattva's Four Methods of Guidance, Bodhisattva Shishoho. And I'll just read a little bit of this. Generosity means non-greed. Non-greed means not to covet. And this has relevance for us in our sitting meditation. because Sometimes we really covet some other state. Non-greed means not to covet. Not to covet means not to curry favor. Even if you govern the world, you should always convey the correct dharma with non-greed. It is to give away unneeded belongings to someone you don't know, to offer flowers blooming on a distant mountain to the Buddha. Think about that for a second, to offer flowers blooming on a distant mountain. the very intention, the very spirit, even turning the mind towards generosity, is generosity, is virtue. Offer flowers blooming on a distant mountain to the Tathagata, the Buddha, or to offer treasures you had in your former life to sentient beings. Whether it is of teaching or of material, each gift has its value and is worth giving. You could also say each gift has its value and is worth receiving. 
to be someone who's willing to receive allows there to be someone who is willing to give. And that interdependence is one whole. Each gift has its value and is worth giving. Even if the gift is not your own, there is no reason to keep from giving. And this doesn't mean that it's virtuous to shoplift from Target because you're going to donate the toys to Salvation Army. We could debate that later. Even if the gift is not your own, there is no reason to keep from giving. What the hell is ownership anyway? In a universe that is only occurrence, in a universe that is only moment, what does it mean to have something? Dogen says, the question is not whether the gift is valuable, but whether there is merit. It's the thought that counts. It's the thought that counts. So a practice you could begin with or continue with, because Kodo and I have been talking about it, as medicine for the various shades of negativity. Now you could do it anyway, but especially If you find yourself in an eddy of negativity, E-D-D-Y, not E-D-D-I-E, if you find yourself in that kind of eddy, I don't know what kind of practice would actually help. A practice you could work with is the thank you practice. Now, I find this is similar to loving kindness or metta in that when I was Younger, and I first did this, I would sit here on my cushion, gritting my teeth, going, all beings be at ease. May all beings be happy. May all beings. And it wasn't very effective. It's an attitudinal training. The words are a vehicle to draw out that heart. Just like if you're doing loving-kindness, the words, ideally, they catalyze, they spark that attitude which exists within us, whether dormant or not. So sometimes these kind of things are a bit like starting an old engine. you got to keep pulling the thing. Praising the myriad presences. In this moment, just look around and see all the things that are supporting your experience right now. You could be meditating in a dusty garage with scorpions on the wall in 90 degree heat. Somebody somewhere is. Praising the myriad presences. Thank you, light. Thank you, bamboo floor. Thank you, Sangha. When you do it from your heart, there'll be a little droplet of light. 
little droplet of light will shatter in your body. And that can accumulate. The myriad sustaining presences in this moment. You could use this as a mantra. Right? Mantra means pr- protecting the mind. It is much better even to do rote thank yous than it is to indulge in some sort of uh, my life sucks narrative. One good thing about the mind is there's only one thought in it at a time. Thank you. So this is raw praise of beingnesses. And you may, you don't need to elaborate it conceptually. You don't need to say, thank you, potatoes, for your nutrients and potassium and the curry powder. No, 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 you don't. No, just keep it, just thank you. Thank you, potatoes. And see what happens. See if the, the presence of, of that is any different when you are in relationship with it in that way. Thank you, sky. Again, you may have to stick with this. Sometimes we have to pry open our hearts like a door that's been stuck for way too long. And it might not happen just by sitting there and concentrating. We need help to pry that heart door open. And so you can do this and then return to direct connection. Right? Because we're opening to a gratitude for our life that does not rest on anything but being itself. A good way to spend the breaks is not sitting with a cup of tea thinking about how your life is bad. A good way to spend the breaks is to walk through the forest and practice this praising of all the myriad beingnesses. So may we may we wake up May we wake up so that actions of mind, body, and speech uplift, edify, brighten, and are positively generative. During session, we do this in silence. We practice secret virtue. An old tradition in old Japanese monasteries is that you go out of your way and do something for somebody, but you don't brag about it. You don't tell anybody what you did because that spoils it. You just do it. And I'm not suggesting that anybody get busy. Don't create gifts for people. Don't busy yourself. But consider the low-hanging fruits of gratitude and generosity that present themselves throughout the day. Now flavored with gratitude is lively, habitual 
commentary mind always drags, always weighs us down. It's easy to see this. 